This is Game Theory, our podcast about strategy, competition, and decision-making, hosted by me, Chris Andrews, and my brother, Nick. On today's episode, we begin with a question. What do Paul Rudd, Stephen Colbert, Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama, Sonia Sotomayor, Joyce DeWitt, Jordan Peele, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and Brad Pitt all have in common? The answer? They're all alumni of the National Speech and Debate Association. Since 1925, with the foundation of the National Forensic League, the predecessor of the NSDA, more than 2 million people in all 50 states have taken part in competitive speech and debate as members of the NSDA, and thousands of others have been part of similar programs in different leagues across America and around the world. On Player 3, speech and debate is near and dear to my heart. I personally got my start on a long, exciting career path as a direct result of a debate topic I had in the 10th grade, so I know I'm biased but I couldn't resist sharing the goodness of the forensics world with you in this episode. As it turns out, getting a start in something like high school speech and debate can make a huge difference in a person's quality of life. According to historical sampling from Chapman University's Survey on American Fears, overall, of all the scary, nerve-wracking things out there in the world, Americans' biggest fear is public speaking, even more than heights, bugs, snakes, or claustrophobia. Yet, in a developed economy... Interpersonal communication skills, including delivering speeches or briefings in a formal setting, are invaluable. Competitive speech and debate opens the door to young people to allow them to get started learning the ins and outs of these activities. Middle and high school students who are part of these programs learn to develop challenging skills that will help them succeed in the modern world as much as any classroom study or any other extracurricular activity could, if not more so. But perhaps most importantly... Speech and debate helps people build self-confidence inside a healthy, supportive community. In a time when it feels like the social fabric is wearing intolerably thin, activities like this one are as important as ever to the well-being of American democracy. We're talking speech and debate, and we're glad to have you with us. Welcome to another episode of Game Theory, your podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. And we got a chess tournament coming up. So we're going to be in Philly for the World Open, the weekend of the 4th of July. Philly is one of the cool cities to be in in America for the 4th of July. Most towns are leaving towns. What I mean by that is on the weekends, people don't stay in town. For the 4th of July, they go out, they go to the beach, they go to the lake, they go to the country. Philly, D.C., Boston are towns where people come in and they enjoy the history. Is, is D.C. fun in 4th of July? Yeah, it's, it's, it's always packed, almost always packed. You know, obviously 2020 was a major exception with the coronavirus pandemic raging. Uh, of course, there was still some activity because we were in the throes of uh, civil rights res- resurgence summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were quite a few activities here and there. Uh, But by and large, D.C. is a fun place to be. If you like crowds, if you like excitement, if you like a general feeling of patriotism, even people who I I think are the most diehard critics of our our fine country uh, still find a reason to feel a little bit of uh, a little thrill of excitement, maybe a little bit of national pride on that weekend in Washington, D.C. And there's always great fireworks and the nationals are always playing. (laughs) It's just a really good time to be in the nation's capital. Yeah, and um, after July, it gets insufferably hot for six weeks, so it's kind of like a good time to stop caring about being outside. 
it's it's ridiculous. I mean, look if if you want to be if you want to work on feeling so if you if you out there player three feel self conscious, I recommend moving to Washington D.C. for a summer because you will just learn to sweat and be uncomfortable and be with a bunch of people who are also sweaty and uncomfortable. And it's a real humbling experience, and it's a good way to learn not to judge yourself for failing to ha- adhere to basic hygiene standards because it is physically impossible with the amount of heat and humidity in the air. <laughs> just can't be done. Right, so a good thing to do would be to go inside, like to do an activity like speech and debate, which is happening over the summer. And this episode is in WTF. That was a great, that was a great segue. Did you like that? Man, that was awesome. We're, you can tell we're, mm. what, 33, 34 episodes in? Yeah, and for me, like this is like my 2000th podcast or something. I can get people on topic and off topic. Ooh, baby, it's like directing a symphony for me. But speech and debate is inside. This is a WTF about speech and debate. Before we get into it, and Chris was a huge nerd in high school, an incredible successful at speech and debate in Wyoming and at the national level, sort of, that, I mean, you had, you had some game. You had some game. But before that, we want to remind everyone, you had some game. We want to remind everyone then that once we get to 1,000 subscribers on Spotify slash Apple slash YouTube, so you could double subscribe if you're subscribed and following us on Apple, you can go to YouTube and just click the button and then not pay attention. That'll count as two subs. As soon as we get to 1,000, we will do this weekly, and um, I say that every episode to like encourage you to do it, but also to remind myself that I have to continue to put an effort here, Chris. It's a, uh, it's quite, it's quite the commitment, but we're excited. We're excited to do that, and we are way more than halfway there, so it'll be close. I, I am gonna say by the new school year, we'll be doing this every, every week, which would be you know, Nick. It's, it's starting to feel like making that announcement week after week. You know, we, we go back and listen to the episodes just to make sure that we're. Right. producing something that's like publishable quality. Ugh. And every time I hear that, it sounds more and more like a threat. <laughs> yeah, and so, Player 3, if you want to join in yeah, on that, uh, hit the subscribe button, threaten your friends and colleagues to join as well, threaten and them. make us do more voluntary work uh, for fun so we can enjoy each other's company. Right. Uh, before we get to the episode, a couple of other announcements. We are going to be doing kind of a crossover collaboration episode with another podcast out there about some business stuff, which is really exciting. So that's look for that coming up in a little bit. And I want to say our email address, Twitters and all that stuff is in the show notes. Of course, if you have thoughts, we are considering where to put our resources as this is not a full-time job. Uh, If you want us to do some twitching, we could stream. We want to focus on YouTube, TikTok, whatever, Instagram, more podcast episodes, whatever you want. Just uh, shoot us a line. You can do it anonymously. You can do it on Spotify. You can do it uh, slide into the DMs. You can write us an email, whatever you want. If you have thoughts for growing the show, you, the people, player three that has been with us from day one, your opinion right now matters most, especially because you're listening to this. Okay, speaking of opinions that matter, another great segue for me. Let's talk about a speech and debate. So speech and debate is sort of like chess club, math club, and AV club in high school. The cliche is it's where all the nerds go and nobody knows what happens when you play sports. So this episode is Chris's his, his, his show. This is his Broadway one night only one man special. So Chris, let's start out. WTF is speech and debate in the United States. When did it start and when, what, what is it for people that didn't participate? Speech and debate is in my opinion, the single most fulfilling. I got, I, 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 I go back and forth on how to describe it, whether it's the most fun or the most fulfilling I, at times it's both. It's a great way for young people to learn the very, very challenging skill of speaking to other people in a public, deliberate way. Uh, It's a a really just very well-run program at the national level in this country, and there are chapters all over the United States, in all 50 states, and 
it's basically a way for high school students to get together and try to overcome some challenges and spend some time with each other off of like a competitive sports environment. The National Speech and Debate Association is the governing body for speech and debate in high school, and it covers a broad array of events, topics, activities, tournaments. There are just a oodles of sources of of, of, of donors, of sponsors, uh, sources of information, resources for people who want to learn what the program is, what it, how to get better at it. Uh, really great organization that helps students uh, join speech and debate. Uh, Nick, you asked when it started, uh, and uh, according to the NSDA website, uh, speech and debate began almost 100 years ago. The association, as it's known today, had a different name back then. It was actually known as the National Forensic League, the NFL, and if you're keeping track at home, over 100, nearly 100 years predates the National Football League. So no there big, was a big deal. Thing. Yeah, a few years ago, they had to rename themselves so they didn't uh, keep getting mixed up with, with football. But in 1925, uh, this guy named Bruno Jacob, who was at Ripon College in Wisconsin, and sorry if anybody went there and knows that that's not the way to pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce it. I've only ever seen it written. <laughs> but this guy, Bruno Jacob, founded what would become the National Speech and Debate Association. And his goal was to motivate high school students to participate in these kinds of structured debate activities with one another. And at the time, it looked very different than it does today. Uh, today, there are nearly a dozen events that students can participate in that cover all kinds of things like one-on-one -on -one value-based debates to impromptu public speeches to acting out scenes from films and specialized scripts to conducting a mock Congress. It's a lot more diverse. It's a lot bigger now, obviously, than it was when it first started. Uh, but back in the day, uh, this guy Bruno Jacob basically wanted to give young people a resource to try to improve not only their public speaking skills, but the broader state of po public and social discourse in this country. You know, obviously, in 1925, we were in, in between world wars. Uh, we hadn't yet hit the Great Recession or the Great Depression. Uh, sorry, recession. Just it scarred me for life. Yeah. And. There were a lot of positive things happening in America, and there were a lot of negative things happening in America. And you know, it, it, then as now, public discourse was an essential part of a healthy democracy. And Bruno Jacob thought that getting people started at a younger age, you know, before they even enter into college and start exploring like the liberal arts or going into trades or whatever, that preparing them with those skills would be a good way to kind of elevate public discourse. And I think he's been wildly successful. The organization still exists today. It's still uh, responsible for helping students to improve their own skills and improve their ability to research and, and empathize with other people who have different life experiences and communicate that in, uh, in a structured form. And it's just, to me, it's just the most awesome, fulfilling, exciting thing that a young high school student can do. Yeah, so I think that the the way it's portrayed in either popular media or just in everyone's general high school experience is that it's like debate club, but speech and debate is a little bit more interesting than that, I think, because it's the events are so much more diverse than I ever expected. Now, I watched you debate twice. One time, I had just had a pretty significant surgery, and I was so stoned. You were, I you don't... were just absolutely high as a kite. Yeah, and I absolutely fall into a category of Americans who were aggressively over-prescribed opioids that they did not need, and I'm very fortunate not to have had a ruined life because of well, that. Yeah, but it was alas. pretty, pretty significant, uh, pretty yes. significant operation there. So no. you know the yes. painkillers were justified, but yeah, you were at that time just they were soaring in the clouds in Las Vegas. 
Yes, at that time they were. I was still within like, I think it was like weeks after. Like it was just enough in Vegas. You were at the national tournament in Vegas. And it was close enough after my surgery that I could like get on a plane and, and, and do all of that kind of stuff. But the other time I saw you was in Casper. We just happened to be there, which is the right in the middle of the square of Wyoming. And I was there for college and you were there and I watched a, an event. So what I saw were two different things. The, the thing in Casper was what's called the Lincoln-Douglas debate. And that's two people standing at a podium arguing and, and had bringing up points and they're being judged. The other debate I saw was something I thought was way more interesting and I didn't know what it was called. It's called extemporaneous debate. And it is essentially you're given a topic and an amount of time to come up with a speech about that topic. And then each person takes their turn. So you're not really debating anybody. It's an extemporaneous speech that you're giving and making an argument. It's a, it's a verbal essay. I, then I, the national tournament, I learned that there's a bunch of shit. There's comedy, there's oratory, there's like Congress, which is boring. That to me, that's the, the UN club. To, but like some people probably find it interesting. But shout out to all the model UN people out there. <laughs> and then to this, I, saying, I, hey, model UN sounds a lot like that. Well, yeah, it, it is in a lot of ways. It is a lot. Of, yeah, I mean, it's just people coming up with, uh, I mean, model UN is just speech and debate, but there's only one event, right? I think so. I mean, kind of. I don't know. I know a lot of people who have done it, and uh, probably the same thing happens when we start to talk about, or when I start talking about speech and debates, my eyes glaze over because, like, <laughs> yeah, I didn't do that. And uh, it sounds great. Like, I'm not going to read all that, but I'm happy uh, for you, or sorry that happened. So I'm happy for you, or sorry that happened. Just, the greatest just kidding, Molly, guys. But yeah, so, yeah, Nick, you're you're right. There are a ton of, uh, of events, and there, there are some kind of more main events that are a lot more common you, that you'd see if you were to go to a, a speech and debate tournament at a high school over a weekend in any town USA, you might be more likely to see a lot of these events than others. And some of them only happen at kind of special occasions. Some of them are, are exclusive to the national tournament. Uh, and they're trying to, the, the, the speech and debate association is trying to grow these events a little bit more, but really their, their bread and butter persists in the, in these kind of dozen or so events. Uh, and I'll just list those now for, for those of you who are curious about it. Uh, they kind of categorize them into three bins, uh, does the Speech and Debate Association. There are the debate events, which is you know, true debate. We're, we're having a discussion about a defined topic with time limits and questions and all kinds of stuff. Then there are the public address events. That's like where somebody is standing on stage giving a speech about something. Then you, you mentioned the extemporaneous speaking. like that's, a, yeah. that's considered a public address event. So I'm not really debating anybody, but I am making an argument. And then the third category is the so-called interp events. And interp is short for interpretive or interpretation. And that's where a student or a pair of students acts out a scene. And the scene can be cut from a movie or a book or a radio program, I've even heard. Uh, but there are also specifically written scripts that specialists and authors will do that are tailored to the interp event performance for speech and debate. So you get, can get some really kind of specialized material there. Uh, so in the debate events, the, the main bread and butter are basically four. There is the Lincoln-Douglas debate, which is a one-on-one -on -one values-based debate. And that's where they debate questions like whether it's just for the United States to use military force to prevent the acquisition of nuclear weapons by foreign nations. Right. Uh, that actually, Nick, was the debate topic that set me on my career path today. Oh, wow. So that's why I remember it kind of word for word. Yeah, yeah, you do. You're in nuclear. You work in the nuclear information field, I guess. Yeah, and that's and that's precisely why I, I do so is because of this this debate yeah. topic. Uh, then there are two other debates that are each partner based. So there are two teams of two and they're very different events, even though they have a, a kind of similar structure. One is called the public forum debate. And this one's really fun. It's based on this old uh, Ted Turner show, Crossfire. 
Oh, yeah. Yes. It's on. I think it's still on. Is it still on? I mean, I don't know. It's not what it was, but it's still, I think it's still a thing. I don't have cable and I'm not going back and I'm not going to like cruise Ted Turner's news network. And CNN Plus did not make it a month. Yikes. CNN Plus. (laughs) RIP, you guys. Come on. But so this, this, uh, this debate event was meant to kind of bring big kind of hot button issues to bear in, in a public setting. And a lot of times there are like serious questions. Like I remember a few years after I graduated high school when President Obama was thinking about uh, adding troops to, uh, the, to like adding a surge of troops in Afghanistan. Uh, there, the public debate teams debated that topic for a month and, and their topic changes every, every month. Uh, but then they also do some kind of, I guess, less serious topics. Like for example, when I was in high school, the NBA made some changes to its dress code for players outside of court, like when they were going to and from the games or whatever. And uh, that was a topic for a month. Uh, And as you can imagine, a lot of people who chose to do debate rather than a sport were not exactly psyched about that topic. That one got a lot less traction than some of the others, I would say. Which is interesting and unfortunate. Uh, We could dive into that a little later when we talk about some of the drawbacks, which I have a a few after having observed some of these events. Yeah, I'd, I'd be really curious to know what those are. Yeah. And then uh, the, the final kind of main debate event is, is this thing called policy debate. And Nick, do you remember a show called, uh, I think, The Great Debaters? Yeah, of course. That was with uh, was it Denzel Washington. I think so. I, yeah. I, I, I don't remember. It's a civil rights movie, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the policy debate event as exists today, or it's sometimes called a cross-examination debate. Like in Wyoming, they refer to it as CX or cross-examination that is a much more in-depth, much longer debate event. It lasts for twice as long as the others. Uh, it's still partner-based, but the difference is these guys are not debating a, uh, a, a hot-button issue or a moral values-based topic. They're debating a issue of specific policy. And the thing that's really challenging about that event is that the topic only changes once a year. So when they start the school year, they're going to be debating the same thing as they are at the end of the season or if they make it to the national tournament. And that's kind of challenging in two ways. Number one, it it provides them with a lot more room to kind of diversify what they want to argue in a given round. So if you have nine months to think about a topic, then you can come up with a lot of really creative ideas that are hard for the other team to anticipate. So you have to really, really do a lot of research. There's a huge volume of stuff. And the other weird thing about that one is that I feel like a lot of people who have kind of been tangentially involved with speech and debate or who have been accosted by somebody who was have heard about policy debate because that's the one where they talk really, really fast. Why? It's a, it's a highly technically skilled, like, I mean, it's it's crazy fast. Like, I couldn't even do a good impersonation. It's like they're slurring their words to try to get as many words as possible out so they can read as many, like, cards of evidence that they've clipped from researchers or, or news articles so that they can just flood the zone with information. And then it's the responsibility of their opponent to respond to that and if they miss any of it if it gets through if they don't make time to respond to all of this junk that they're just like throwing out <laughs> into the discussion then it's so-called flows through to the end and the the other team will say say see judge they missed this point so that must mean they agree with us and there's a lot of technical skill and there's a lot of formalized structure to policy debate it's the oldest debate event mm. uh, that's the one that uh, that happened in in 1931 with the first ever tournament that bruno jacob host, hosted uh, at Ripon College, and so uh, it's it's uh, it's kind of a, got a high barrier to entry for compared to the other debates, uh, but it's still highly popular and and it's a lot of fun to watch when you get some really smart, well practiced, uh, well researched kids debating an interesting topic. 
So, yes. I, I So, first of all, the policy thing is really interesting to me, and I didn't know they did all of that. So, it's like a... It's almost like you're like a game of marbles where you have to just collect as many as you possibly can, which is kind of strange. I did not know that it, it worked that way. And speaking fast would kind of... Is that a skill or is that just an annoying way to score points? Like, wouldn't it be better? What, like, if you had a, let's just say, like a non-verbal uh, person on the autism spectrum and they wanted to, would they be allowed to type when they just shit pump everybody if they could just type out their points, probably? I, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, if it, if it, was, if it was like an essay writing contest and you yeah. had no time limit on how much you could write, yeah, I mean, that would be, theoretically, that'd be the way to go. That's hilarious. And there was there was some guy, I didn't bother researching this because I personally don't think that aspect of policy debate is desirable. You know, I, mm. I think the point of addressing public issues and doing research on really challenging topics is to try to communicate information in a meaningful way. And I think that kind of, they call it spreading because they just spread out as much information as they can as quickly as they can and, and try to cover as much area as possible to make it hard for their opponent to answer. I think that makes it less about debating the issue and more about kind of like fighting and yeah. trying to like win on, on technique. And I think there's some value in that. I really do think there is some value to it. Uh, but I think it translates a lot less to accessibility in the way that like Lincoln Douglas debate, for example, the moral philosophy kind of oriented debate that's one on one. That one is based on historical debates that actually happened between right. yeah between Lincoln and Douglas during the uh, the Illinois Senate campaign. And the the point of that debate event is to bring challenging philosophical issues to bear in a way that's accessible to somebody who isn't like a specialist or researched on those topics. And and they mix this kind of high minded philosophy with public issues of the day. And they, uh, the, the students are supposed to take the time to think through and examine the logic of how different philosophers would look at different current issues. And I think that's a really good thing to do to elevate public discourse. And, and I think this, this kind of spreading thing about policy debate, technically, it's a good strategy because it's, it makes it more likely for the judge to vote for you if your opponent just doesn't answer something you said. But right. I think that kind of diminishes sort of the educational benefit for, from somebody who hasn't been doing the research the entire year. So there are trade-offs there, and, uh, and it, it certainly looks a lot different today than it did in the 1920s and 1930s. I mean, yeah, this every is sport kind of like does. Some, some college student figured out that, well, you know, if I just say a bunch of stuff really fast and I can't get to it at the end of the round, I can say, well, you know, they didn't answer me. And the judge is like, well, technically that's true. So you win. And technicalities and, are annoying. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's really unfortunate. I, I complain to people in the uh, speech and debate circles all the time that that kind of spreading style is making its way into some of the other de debate events like like in Lincoln Douglas every once in a while I'll see students do this kind of over researched over rehearsed spreading of just information and it's like well that's not really the point of what we're supposed to do here you're supposed to persuade a judge of an opinion not bombard people and bully them into giving you a victory and yeah. so I, I don't really care that care for that leaking out of the policy world. But I think there is something to be said for the work that has to go in on the back end in order for a student to have the skill. Yeah, you should be well-researched. But I think what's interesting in this, like, I think uh, this will take us down to like a little bit of an aside. I definitely think that in all of competition, I've noticed that just my observations are that baseball is always the first one through the wall when it comes to implementing new advances in how we analyze information and what's successful because baseball of all of the major sports or competitions, baseball has the largest sample size. So they can do that. And they, and once baseball does it, it kind of leaks into other stuff. And what, what you're saying is here, this is, this is analytics getting into speech and debate and being like, let's just do the data part of this. And then we'll, we'll deal with, with the other side of it. 
what always comes back around and happened in baseball, it's happening now in basketball. Somebody realized that three is 50% more than two and that at a certain percentage, just taking only threes is mathematically optimum always. Like you should never take, like if you're playing basketball on the court with your friends, ones and twos, never take a one. That's stupid. Um, so they, so when, somewhere Wilt Chamberlain is really angry and has no idea why. Yes, yeah, yeah, he's dead. But yes, he's super angry. That's probably why he's angry. Yes, he has like that's, yeah. rumors of hundreds of children. So regardless, if this is making its way into speech and debate and people are just like datatizing speech debate, the pushback that happened in baseball was, well, some people are going to be skilled. And by just spreading it, those people are just going to crush everybody. If the, if the field is just doing data and just trying to win with like a, a flood of facts, the people that are really good are like, oh, well, this is boring. I'm just going to kill all of you. Yeah. Um, doing that preparation in advance and having a systematic approach to the thing, like it, at a certain point, if it results in winning and it results in success, then right. it kind of doesn't matter right. whether you're doing like the gentleman's style. You know, like in chess, chess used to be played a lot differently because it was considered unsporting to turn down somebody's like offer for a sacrifice. Like if somebody's going to sacrifice a piece to get an attack, like it was considered unsportsmanlike to decline to take that. And I, I think debate is kind of similar in that way. And you're, you're right. It's like it's a totally analytics approach because they're using systematic data collection to try to approach the event with the goal of winning instead of the goal of like educating or having this high minded discussion or whatever the case is. And it's it's all on judges too. like what, what they want. Like for me, if I were judging, I would want. And I, I always had this like idea when I was like first became a voter, like you can't vote on everything, pick one or two things that really matter to you, because at the end of the day, the candidates are probably basically the same. And it's president or city council, just pick one or two things that you want. But so from a judging standpoint, I would think that's the same way. And if you if you flooded like in policy, if you just flooded someone with facts, wouldn't the antithesis of not addressing a topic be the same thing as like poking hole in one? Like, oh, well, if their one point that they have is incorrect, like, how do we know any of this is true? Yeah. And, and that's that's a really good point. I mean, the, the entire argument has to make a lot of sense. And the, one of the interesting things I think about policy debate is that there are completely different styles of judging based on different kind of conventions that exist. That technically, there are no rules in the debate events other than the time limits for each individual speech. So the way it, they're, they're always structured. So in a policy debate event, there's a constructive speech that lasts eight minutes and then a response speech that lasts eight minutes and then five minutes of cross-examination. Mm -hmm. And then they repeat for the other partners on the team. Uh, Lincoln Douglas always has this very interesting style of one person speaks for seven minutes and then they cross-examine and then the other person speaks for six minutes and then they cross-examine. And it's a, it's a structured thing, but those are the only rules that are required. But over the years, people have developed these kind of conventions that they'll apply to the debate and say, well, there are these things, Judge, called stock issues, and one of those things is called solvency. And the, the solvency means, does my adversary's plan solve the problem that they've identified? And I'm yeah. going to tell you no, and they didn't do so for reasons one, two, and three. There's a problem of topicality, where my opponent makes an argument, but they're not really on topic, because you see the definition of the term that they used is actually misapplied here, and you should prefer to use this other definition. So they're really talking about something that's not on this topic, so that shouldn't count for toward their score. And these conventions give judges a way to grab onto what people are saying. They're like, oh, yeah, okay, not topical, got it. And then they had debate, like, well, is this actually on topic or is it off topic? Does this actually solve the problem or does it not solve the problem? And it's kind of like handholds in climbing. You know, it's it's a way yeah. for people to kind of negotiate this terrain. Sure. And it's a way for debaters to, to remain organized as well. And then yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a really interesting one of these. It's called a, a critique. 
And it's kind of different from all these other things. It's spelled K-R-I-T-I-K, critique. And it's a way to kind of get around having to do the debate. They basically discuss another topic that's like, it's kind of like meta-analysis of what what's happening in the round. And you'll see that a lot with questions of like equality. So like, for example, if there's a, an event with a lot of private high schools and then a lot of public high schools with a lot less funding and smaller teams and fewer resources, somebody from one of these teams might run a critique in the round and say, look, it's impossible for us to meet this standard of research because these guys have more money, they have more time, they have more coaching. We're just not equipped to do that. And so because mm. of that, you should discount these arguments. And it's kind of like, I, I think it's a, it, it can be done well in an interesting way when it's done right. Uh, I also think it's sometimes like a hokey way to get out of doing the debate. Like once I saw people run a critique that said, we can't have this discussion about trying to, the, the topic was about climate change and, and, and energy. And they said, well, we can't debate this topic if we're not willing to contribute to the solution to climate change, which is Ooh, less carbon use. Clever. And they said, we can, we're debating in a classroom that's using electricity and by doing so, we're actually making things worse. So we need to shut off all the lights in this room. Mm, but by the traveling to the event, you were... cell phones. And it, 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 mm. like, there, there are ways to do that that are that's technically allowed. And they made that argument. They went and like shut the lights off and turned off their little computers. Like students can use computers in in the round to like. Hold but they shouldn't materials. have. They shouldn't have traveled. They should have wrote a letter. I, see, I agree. I agree with you. And if you're going to commit, you got to commit. Didn't say that. Commit. It's like you're willing to commit drive to the on bit. a bus. That's right. That's exactly that's exactly right. So I can think Yes. So what I find interesting about this is like every other thing Crossfire was popular. We Googled it during uh, while you were talking and Crossfire started in, in England and then it became an American show in the seventies. Forever and ever and ever got cancelled in two thousand and three, four, five, somewhere in there. John Stewart was there and he completely obliterated someone. There's he's got his own bullet point on the Wikipedia page for Crossfire, which is hilarious. It then died and it came back to life for like three 30 minutes and then it was subsequently canceled again, which to me kind of points at a larger thing that I find really interesting and kind of disheartening about speech and debate and about the general discourse of, of reality TV and everything in the United States, which is that people don't find challenging things interesting. And you have to kind of really commit to caring about something. But when you do, it's really interesting. We started the show talking about blitz chess versus studying for chess. Like blitz chess is great. I use it for mental health. I use it when I'm standing in line. I use it when I'm bored. I just crush some games. I win them. I lose them, whatever, who cares? But in order to get the most out of chess, I have to like study it. This is the same kind of thing with debating. We see this in sports are a great example. The Washington post wrote a profile of sorts on the show around the horn which was one of the original sports debate shows. I believe it was literally, I think I, someone had to fact check. It was, me, I feel I, like it was in there right, was set, right around the, the second time one. PTI was starting. So PTA is the first one ever that sports uh, that ESPN debuted and was one of the first, na it was the first national debate show where the journalists had opinions and they just tossed up a topic and, and talked about it. Then around the horn was like, we'll take that idea and then we'll award a winner. There will be a judge and he will have the ability to mute people and, and it became this whole thing of making it a contest that people could watch and invest in. And like the points are made up and they don't matter. LOL is exactly the same thing as whose line is it anyway, yeah, which is kind of what Carey. they were. I mean, that's what they were doing. It was just a debate show. Um, and it's sports. So who cares? I mean, in sports, you, could, you, you know what's going to happen. You just wait and watch the game. And then it happens or doesn't happen. But in real life, this has kind of started to seep in. So Lincoln-Douglas debate, which is an event, started because... 
Lincoln and Douglas, who were running for Senate, I believe, in Illinois in the 1800s, they, at that point in time, senators were not elected by general vote. They were elected by the assembly of that state, right? The Congress and whatever that's in that state. They choose the senator, which is an interesting way to do it. But then we passed some amendment in the Constitution, and now the people get to decide who their senators are. That seems fair to me. They did these kind of debates as a way to make an argument. Lincoln was challenging. Douglas was defending. They wanted to show the people of Illinois uh, to tell this the assembly. They wanted the assembly to feel represented. And because of the telegram and rail travel, they felt as if they were kind of speaking to the entire state of Illinois instead of just going on these tours. It was the first ever media event. It was, a, it was this really clever debate-style contest, and it, it changed a lot of things. Down one road went discourse, and down another road went media. People really liked it. And now what we see with with pardon the interruption and with around the horn and with presidential debates in 2016 between candidate Trump and candidate Clinton and then 2020 with President Trump and candidate Biden, it has become a TV show. There's no winners or losers and the level of discourse kind of reflects what you're saying. We're like paying attention and really focusing on, on what's going on is hard and tiring and people don't like it. But if you like it, it does become entertaining. There are people who enjoy watching high level chess games. But because it's entertainment, there's no incentive to win or lose the debate. There's incentive to win or lose the media event, which went back to, of course, Kennedy and Nixon in the 60s. Well, th- well that's, that's one of the things about, about making competition out of a debate. I mean, the, the, yeah. the point of having discourse is to arrive at a more correct or better understanding of an issue of importance. And uh, I guess what is of importance it depends on who you ask. But when you talk about stuff like candidate Trump versus candidate Clinton in the presidential debates or candidate Trump versus candidate Biden in, in presidential debates, the goal there is to gain media attention and yeah. to possibly get people to vote for you in the long run and win within the system that we have in the U.S. And I, I think it's also highly visible in sports debate shows where the point slowly over time becomes not to get a better understanding of the sports or like think about the issues, but to identify with a winner and kind of put on a tribal hat and say, Oh yes, so-and-so won and the other person lost. You know, there's, there's a difference between, I think arguing with somebody and fighting with somebody. And an argument Uh is when you enter into a discussion with the purpose of trying to both persuade somebody to join your opinion and having an open mind at the same time to having your own opinion changed by the other right. person. That's an <clears throat> argument. Right. A fight is when you go in with no other objective in mind than to get the other person to comply with whatever you're saying, whether that's agreement with an opinion, whether that's letting you do something or getting them to stop doing something. The point is to win and not to grow. And that, I think, is a really important distinction. And so you see like sports debate shows. like uh, There's that one with Skip Bayless and... Uh, Shannon Sharp. Sharp. Yeah. It, yeah. And like the, even the ads, like I'm not going to watch that show, but from what I know about Skip Bayless <laughs> and what I've seen in the advertising yeah. advertisements, it's like, oh yeah, this is like the ultimate smackdown between this guy and this guy. And like, I don't care about whether those guys win an episode of the show. That doesn't matter to me. I'm interested in the sports. And so I'm going to look for sports content. I don't want to mess around with this kind of crap. And that, so when, when you have events like speech and debate that put, debates about important issues into this highly structured format, I think you're kind of on a little bit of a slippery slope because on the one hand, you're teaching students to think deeply about important issues in a way that a classroom may or may not get to. On the other hand, you're kind of teaching them to just like figure out the best way to win. 
and right. not necessarily get them to improve their civic engagement or their actual understanding of an issue. And it becomes about technique and technicality rather than about personal growth and development and, and raising the educational level of everybody involved with the event. And so I, I think that's that's really something to, to pay well, attention to. Well, Chris, that really segues more. into like what I, one of the, the big drawbacks I have with this. So like, as you know, I spend a lot of time, I'm really ponderous about sports. I just spend a lot of time just sitting and thinking like a loser, just staring. And tweeting, tweeting about I sports. Tw- Follow I at, tweet about, at Tribnik. At Tribnik. It's mostly Detroit-based sports, but I occasionally, yesterday I went on a little bit of a tangent about the New York Times reporting that to solve the housing crisis, there are people that are living with complete strangers. This is not a bullshit headline. They reported that to solve the housing crisis, people are living with people they don't know. Those are called roommates. Incredible. Unbelievable that New York Times has finally discovered that. Honestly, this is the kind of sleuthing that wins them the Pulitzer Prize every year. It's fucking crazy. And also, like, totally worth the price of admission. If you're going to read interviews with people that are like, hey, I don't know these people, but it's so expensive right now that we thought if we pooled our resources and lived together. You know what the follow-up should be, Chris? The follow-up should be that if you're in a romantic or sexual relationship with someone, if you pool your resources, then you could both develop your relationship and save money on rent. It's crazy. (laughs) New York Times next week. How did this couple navigate the housing crisis? They got married and moved in together. The only way to share resources. Uh, Yeah, regardless. So that's what you find on my my Twitter. Okay, so I I spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff in really deep ways. One day I will classify all the sports in different, like, meta ways and I want to write like a codex about it. Someday. Just for myself. Someday someday we're going to publish the Game Theory Codex authored by Nick. Probably edited by me. So I find, from a mental health standpoint, I find um, combat sports to be the worst. And the reason I think that is because... And so wrestling in high school, to me, is an abomination that there is a state-funded team that will incentivize growing boys and girls to reduce their calorie intake. That is, that is torture. It is, that should never be incentivized. It is disgusting. Cutting weight among... And they're... You'll ask wrestlers, like they all believe their growth is stunted. That's a different thing. What I'm talking about is in combat sports, it's called mixed martial arts or martial arts, which is an art. It is a practice, but we've turned it into a competition. Real elite martial artists, these, these dojos and these masters, it's, it's for self-defense, but we've turned it into a sport. The problem is that it's very similar to when you see two elk fighting or two moose fighting or two rams fighting. It is for the right to breed right? It's in your brain. My self-worth is my ability to win this. If you're watching football or tennis, there's a ball and there's uniforms. It's kind of stupid, but we all agree it's really fun and interesting. So we watch it. This is like a mating thing. Like I am this. And if I don't beat you, I am not worthy of what you have earned. I find speech and debate runs a similar risk because it's your opinion. And now I don't know what it's like in practice. And I imagine a lot of times you have to, you are forced to take the contrarian argument and you're forced to explore a lot of different avenues of thought. But if you're like, say for policy, I can see a situation where someone's self-worth at a very young and vulnerable age gets associated with this kind of thinking and then they get beat and they're like, well, I must not be worthy because these are my thoughts. This is my emotion. This is what I believe in. And I, my, my biggest point of evidence here is just anecdotal, but I've been to these tournaments uh, when you're about to win awards and there are people there that are despondent, like they are crushed. Like I lost plenty of football games and hockey games and baseball games. And some of them were sadder than others. None of them were like, and this is, I see these people, they go through this shit every weekend. This is wild. So I, I do worry that one of the drawbacks of this is that it gets too associated with self and it's it. And like, we, we, like with the point that you just made that people trying to win 
more than trying to learn makes it like I am not as worthy as these other people. Like, no, this is a thought exercise and we've made it fun. And yeah, that's where I think it's tricky. That's one of the one of the challenges for people who are, are coaching. You know, I've had the great good fortune of, of being able to uh, you know, occasionally volunteer time to help with students at, uh, at, at the Green River High School and, you and I graduated from. And one of the things that we really try to emphasize there is that there are, there are a lot of reasons to do like we talked to Lincoln Douglas debaters about uh, about ethics like there's different kinds of ethics like you should do something because it's always the right thing to do or you should do something because it's going to produce good results those are entirely consistent ethical theories that philosophers have developed over time and the one that we really try to get to or at least the one that I, that I, I had a great role model in in uh, Dan Parson shout out to Dan Parson the head coach of, uh, of Green River High School speech and debate he taught through example that the reason to do something is because it makes you a better kind of person. The reason to be honest is because it makes you an honest person. The reason to be generous is because it makes you a generous person. And the reason to put effort into stuff like debate and speech and the other performative events is that it makes you a better thinker, speaker, engager, a more empathetic person, a more caring person. And the point, like one of the corollaries of that is that that's not always going to translate to like winning on the ballot. It's very fun to win. The Green River High School has a rich tradition of winning in speech and debate, but the point is never to like bring home hardware. That's nice. And it'll probably be the result if you continue to put in genuine effort. But the point is to become a better person at the end of it. And, and, you know, that's really contingent on, on coaches and, and adult leaders and peer mentors who have been in speech and debate to, try to impress upon younger people who are trying to find identity. You know, Nick, one of the things about speech is that a lot of times it's considered an alternative to people who may not have the, uh, the athletic inclination as like wrestlers or, or basketball players or you know, the star athletes or whatever. It, it may be a place where people who otherwise don't have like a thing or like a group or right. a, a sense of belonging, they, they can find that in speech. You know, all are really welcome there. And a lot of times it becomes a source of validation and self-confidence and a resource for young people who otherwise might not have avenues of growth uh, in the same way that, uh, that their peers do. You know, it, a lot of times in speech and debate, people are, over the course of a weekend spend time commiserating about feeling a little bit disenfranchised and kind of uh, shouted down, ironically, by the more dominant personalities in the schools that they inhabit for five days a week. And so going away for a weekend to spend time with peers who have similar interests, who have different life experiences, who can come together over this event, that can be a way for young people to find a source of like, oh, okay. And they can look around and say like, oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. Right. And develop unique friendships that might not otherwise be there. And so so you're right. You know, the, the emphasis on on winning and getting the, the technical edge over an adversary uh, it really is kind of the wrong focus, and and so it, it is a little bit of a slippery slope, and 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 that's kind of one of the reasons that I like the other events that are not uh, debate focused, so the public address events and the interpretive yeah. events. Because I want to talk about comedy. Tell them about comedy. Yeah. So so the interp events are when students can take a script, a story, whether it was written for speech and debate or whether it's in a movie or book or whatever, and inhabit a character for about ten minutes, and they just conduct a, a scene and. You know, the, I, I say inhabit a character. It can be any number of characters. It can be any scene. It can be any approved thing. Say, Chris, uh, and, what won the national championship when you were at nationals? Ah, well, one year I had a very, very funny experience where this guy, who was one of the funniest people I've ever seen in my entire life, did a hilarious interpretation of a children's book called Charlie the Caterpillar. Mm. And if you think I'm kidding... 
Google Charlie the Caterpillar. Absolutely hilarious book uh, when done by this guy. Because he did it in like this ironic storyteller type of way where he was just way mm-hmm. over the top. You know, it, it's a kid's book, but he made it like really funny for people. So I, I thought that was personally hilarious. I was remembering, didn't someone do Thriller by Michael Jackson? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, people people did the Thriller dance. I think they were doing a different, uh, I think they were doing a different story. You'll see like song and dance routines, it. like coordinated yeah. things or whatever. And, and, and there are some rules dictating what people can and can't do. Like you have to have feet on the ground at all times. And like if you do, the, there's one interpretive event where you get a partner. It's called the duo interpretation. Uh, the partner's not allowed to look in each other's eyes or to touch each other like you can't <sighs> do that so you can't do like gymnastics or whatever that's funny so it, it has to be about the story but these uh these interpretive events are that one of the chief defining characteristics in addition to having a pre-written script like the students don't write these they have to be published by somebody else uh, but the thing about the interpret events is that unlike debate nobody is trying to stop the interpreters from doing their very best it's mm-hmm. very much an individual event in the same way that like doing like field events in track nobody is trying to stop you from throwing the shot put or clearing the bar on the high jump it's just your effort your preparation and your performance on the day and it's a different kind of competition in that way it's not adversarial it's just who happens to be the most entertaining or the most engaged or have the most well-developed story and I think those events are an important supplement to the to debaters, and, and you know there are opportunities for students to do multiple events in a weekend. You know, I, I myself did, I think, seven or eight of the different events over the course of of, of a career, and, and many students do many more. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the 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 presence of these interp events and the public address events, the same story. Nobody's trying to stop somebody yeah. from delivering an original oratory that they've written themselves to try to persuade people. Uh, so I, I think that's a good positive supplement to the the more directly structured adversary ship in debate events. So like um, when I was talking about wanting to classify all of the sports, I, I'm kind of one of the things that I noticed is that some sports don't need the opponent to be there for you yes. to do your best. And but having them there kind of ups your level a little bit. I think the best example of this is long distance running, say like the 1600 meter or the marathon where you're like, you train all the time, maybe with coaches or running buddies or whatever, but it's a thing. You don't need anybody else to be there to run a sub three hour marathon, which people are doing now, which is, which is crazy. Like the human Fucking spirit is wild. Incredible. Unbelievable. That's like a five minute mile pace. It's crazy. Anyway, that person, these, these Kenyans and these Americans and these Chinese people, they don't need to be in the same place to do their best. But when they are, they're like, I can do like this much better. And it ups people's games, just a little bit of inspiration. And so this kind of thing where, where you're judged just based on your individuality, like theoretically, these oratory events, um, these interpretive events, Chris, they don't, you could have done them on zoom, I guess, during the pandemic. And they, Cause like, they don't, and they did. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, they, they had to do kind of this hybrid thing The the pandemic hit just right at the end of the season for a lot I of remember because you were going to do a thing and then we it got canceled we were yeah. there yeah I mean I, they, they, it was the strangest thing the, the day that Wyoming reached a threshold of transmission of the coronavirus and at the time when there were no vaccines there was, it was a lot of panic uh, there were school buses that had driven all the way across the state of Wyoming to the Green River High School and they were parked in the parking lot and the governor that morning said no we have to cancel these events because there's too high a risk we, we don't know what's going on so we had to right. put a damper on it so what they did was put together a kind of hybrid virtual format so for the national tournament that year there was a mixture of students getting into zoom rooms and debating with one another and they would get into Zoom rooms and they would do their speeches. But for some events, they would do like pre-recordings. So the yeah. student would do their best single take of whatever their event was. 
and just submit it. And that's that. And so it's a really it's really a huge bummer that they had to do that because one of the things about debate that I, I think makes it such a unique event is that students are able to come together and, and find camaraderie and companionship and friendship in a unique forum. And when things are virtual like that, like technically, yeah, to, they're able to do the event and just do their recording and stay home and blah, blah, blah. But that's not really what it's about. And so it's very exciting this year. Uh, in about a week, I'm going to be uh, going to Louisville, Kentucky for this year's national tournament. Uh, and the teams have been preparing all season and, and they're very excited because this is the first speech and debate nationals since the 2019 nationals. Oh, yeah. So it's been, yep, yep, it's been yep. several years and, and people are getting very, very excited about it. So they don't need to be in the same place to make it happen, but it's a really special thing when they are able to get together and watch each other perform and support each other and learn to grow together in this unique way. Yeah. And I think, uh, it's something that you've been doing for a long time and it's, it, it as someone who's been working remotely for a while, in the 21st century, you need to be able to do both. And, but there's nothing quite like getting together with your colleagues. Being able to crush it in your house on Zoom, very important in this day and age. But it's also better to be there. Just feel a little bit more inspired. Get the small talk, the small talk get the pat on the back. Uh, that, that obviously makes a big deal. It's back in Louisville, which is where you had that ridiculous steak, right? We talked about New York. It's like it's a breeding ground for New York and San Francisco chefs. I didn't know that you could get food like that there. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really psyched about it. Jeff Ruby Steakhouse, psyched to go there. Thank you for everybody who donated to the GoFundMe page for the Green River High School team. Really appreciate your generosity. We're psyched to go there. Nick, this is uh, making me think we ought to do uh, an in-person show at some point. Yeah, I think uh, if we get enough response, I think the goal will be September 2023. We're going to try to find an in-person show. Right now, the leader in the clubhouse is Northern California and New York City for where we would go based on how many fans. But if you're somewhere else and you want us to go to where you are for the, the price of however much it would cost to get into whatever silly, shitty little theater that we, we could book, then convince all of your friends and colleagues to do it. I would, man, I'd be great. I would love to do it. we got to get better at this, though. We're going to have to start twitching and work on our live game a little bit. Yeah. Man. Player three, appreciate your help. And we're live with this week's episode of Game Theory.